Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Jennifer and Lance. This series of Crimes of the Occult is very exciting. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about what our listeners are about to hear? Yes, just in time for the Halloween spooky season. Each story was chosen because a crime occurred, yes, but each has an element that is unexplainable, occult, or just plain scary. Each one of us takes one of these stories, we narrate it, and we present it to you all for your listening pleasure. Think of them as bedtime stories to give you nightmares. And here's Tim bringing you the story of the willing abductee. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. In 1980, Granger Taylor tacked this note to his mother's bedroom door and disappeared into a bright autumn day. He was never heard from again. Dear mother and father, I've gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As recurring dreams assured, a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe and return. I'm leaving behind all my possessions to you, as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. The wilderness of the Pacific Northwest disappears more people than any place in North America. Perhaps it is the primordial forests, or the looming mountains, the insidious fog and rain, or the vast and unforgiving sea. Something about this landscape makes the prospects of getting lost all too inevitable, and the stories of those who go missing from this region all too familiar. But the story of Granger Taylor is anything but ordinary. British Columbia holds the Canadian record for missing persons per capita, about 246 per 100,000 people. Vancouver Island is about as far west as you can go without getting your feet wet. It is 283 miles long and at its widest point only 62 miles across. Most of its population is relegated to the southernmost tip of the metropolis of Victoria. The rest is uncharted and wild. Huge Douglas firs tower over dense undergrowth of fern and rhododendron. Moss creeps everywhere over the steep terrain, blanketing some combs several feet thick. Vancouver Island is also big game country. Black bears, mountain lions, black-tailed deer, and moose roam freely. Sea lions and humpback whales patrol its coasts. In short, before murderers or thieves or other nefarious human things, it is the wild that should be most feared. The town of Duncan on Vancouver Island is small and remote and home to loggers and fishermen, off the gritters and more than one cult. Duncan has a population just under 5,000 but serves as a kind of pole star for the Cuecan Valley, where the Cuecan tribe is about 84,000 strong. The largest band of Cowicans are the coastal Salish people. Due to the prevalence of artifacts linked to this strong and resilient native heritage, Duncan 
is known as City of Totems. By age 32, Granger Taylor was of strong stock and had an abling bear-like gait. He would often win impromptu wrestling matches with his friends and can be seen in some family photos flexing and grinning, sweat shining off his healthy face on a clear summer day. And yet Granger was also a shy, somewhat reclusive man who spoke in a quiet, gentle voice. He preferred machines to people. Granger was, by all accounts, a mechanical genius. Talent knows no class structures, no race or creed. It is as diffuse as falling snow. And one might even say Granger was born with an engineer's mind. He dropped out of school by age eight and went to apprentice at a few local mechanical shops to learn the trade and made his living fixing farm equipment and cars. But it was the projects he embarked upon on his family's 21-acre farm that holds the public's awe. As a young teenager, Granger restored a one-cylinder engine and refurbished a bulldozer for his neighbors to use in their ongoing construction projects. By his 20s and 30s, Granger had moved on to more complicated engines. He once found a rusting, overgrown steam locomotive in the forests of the island and restored it to working order. The BC Forest Discovery Center even placed Granger's locomotive on display after its restoration. Granger also completely rebuilt an old World War II P-40 Kitty Hawk plane, which he later sold to a collector for a sum he had never seen in his entire life. It was around this time that he befriended a local teen, Robert Keller, who helped him with the Kitty Hawk. The two bonded through mechanical projects, Granger serving as a kind of mentor to the younger Robert. He took me under his wing, Robert told Vice. I think he was a genius bordering on insanity. The two would often smoke pot together and discuss big ideas, from the forces which govern the universe, to the existential woes of growing up in the isolation of Vancouver Island, to the existence of extraterrestrials. The late 1970s brought the Star Wars franchise, Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Ridley Scott's Alien, and Star Trek. And in 1984, just a few years after Granger's disappearance, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, Institute launched its mission to, quote, explore, understand, and explain the origin and nature of life in the universe, end quote. In short, aliens and space travel were firmly entrenched in the cultural and even scientific zeitgeist. It was in this time and context that Granger, not unsurprisingly, began to obsess over the existence of other intelligences of the universe. He must have puzzled the same quandaries of great physicists. Fermi's paradox famously explores the contradiction between the lack of evidence for extraterrestrial life and the staggering statistics that all but confirm their existence as per the Drake equation. This, coupled with all the tabloid and underground literature on everything from the Roswell crash to the existence of Project Blue Book to the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill, Granger's engineering mind must have asked, if these beings can visit Earth, how the hell did they get here? His passion for and compulsion to determine the mechanics of space travel thus began. 
1979, Granger began hauling bits of scrap metal to the backyard of his parents' farm. It took him about a year to gather enough material from junkyards and forest scavenges to weld together a life-size replica of a flying saucer. Douglas Curran visited Granger's spaceship for inclusion in his book, In Advance of the Landing, Folk Concepts of Outer Space. Curran said it was composed of two large satellite receiving dishes that met a circular band of metal. It stood upon a kind of tripod above the grass. And inside, Granger outfitted the spaceship with a wood-burning stove and chimney, a TV, and a couch. It shouldn't be mistaken that Granger thought his haphazard saucer would actually fly. He was much too smart for that. Rather, the fact that he built a spaceship that would never fly must be indicative of something. Perhaps he built it as kind of a literal think tank, a physical place in which he could camp out, drop acid, dream of space travel. Maybe it served as a proxy or inspiration, or perhaps it was a kind of totem. The town in which Granger lived was, after all, the city of totems. Tribal totems in the Pacific Northwest are heraldic, or tell stories that pass down information through the generations. Anthropologist A.P. Elkin delineated the functions of totems as social, indicating marriage or family. They can also be symbols of cults or secret organizations. Totems can appear from dreams and demand to be carved from a living tree. Or... Totems can assist healers, or what Elkin calls clever people. Perhaps it was to these mysteries that Granger's spaceship was meant to pay homage. A totem, emerging from a dream, meant to mark his secret knowledge, to assist him in his miraculous escape from the mundane planes of this reality. Or maybe Granger just thought building a spaceship would be cool. In the spring and fall of 1980, Granger began to drop acid almost every day. He told friends that he heard the voices of aliens. And this may sound strange, but there are many who believe that the one constant in the universe is mind or consciousness. Thus, it is in states of altered consciousness that may allow you to communicate with higher dimensional or beings of higher intelligence. So did Granger drop acid and start hearing the beings speak to him? A mere trick of auditory hallucination? Or did he drop acid to alter his consciousness so that he may hear the voices more clearly? Tune the antenna, so to speak. Bob Nielsen, one of Granger's friends, told the Times colonist that a month before he disappeared, Granger claimed to have direct contact with alien beings. He lay there and got mental communications with somebody from another galaxy, said Bob. He couldn't see them. They were just talking to him and his mind. Another friend told Vice that Granger didn't speak of bad acid trips or side effects of taking the drug so frequently. This friend said that many in Granger's circle commented that he spoke frequently about going into outer space and of being in some kind of mental contact with an alien. They say he was so matter-of-fact about it that they were too. He told them he would be leaving soon, a day or two before he did. They all seem to accept that Granger has done what he said he was going to do. Quote, he has a reputation for being honest, and after checking it all out, I think so too. End quote. 
The month of November is a bit of a mystery in Granger's life. We don't know much of his preparations, if he wrote packing lists for space, or how he handled the sorting of his estate and affairs. What we do know is that on the morning of November 29th, 1980, Granger left a note on his mother's bedroom door. On the back of the note was a hand-drawn map of Waterloo Mountain, a modest 3,400-foot mountain about 23 miles away from the Taylor Farmstead near Semenos Lake. We're going to play the recording of Granger's note one more time so that we can better unpack it. Dear mother and father, I've gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As recurring dreams assured, a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe and return. I'm leaving behind all my possessions to you as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. Granger leaves all of his possessions behind, reminiscent of Chris McCandless in his famous journey into the wild, only to meet a grisly death by a slow starvation and eventual poisoning. The note directed Granger's family to his last will and testament, which is a curious document in itself. In the will, Granger crosses out the word funeral entirely and changes the word death to departure. He also explicitly states that he would be gone for 42 months. It's clear Granger planned to return. If we can point to anything common of eccentric geniuses, it is that numbers matter. Granger didn't denote the time he would be traveling in space as three and a half years. He wrote specifically 42 months. So it is worth discussing the number 42. Most notably, the number 42 appears in Douglas Adams' seminal work of science fiction, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was first broadcast in 1978 as a radio program, which Granger might have listened to. According to Adams, 42 is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Over a period of seven and a half million years, a supercomputer spits out this number as the answer to a question lost in time and thus becomes meaningless. So, Granger's inclusion of 42 might have been a private joke. Yet, 42 is also an important number in mathematics. In 1966, Paul Cooper hypothesized that the quickest way to travel from, say, North America to China would be to burrow through the Earth in a tunnel. Through mad calculations of freefall and deceleration for a journey powered entirely through gravity, Cooper determined that such a journey would take 42 minutes. The same stands for travel through space-time, where space is folded and a tunnel is burrowed, the so-called wormhole. Cooper called such travel the gravity train. Perhaps Granger, too, would hop on the gravity train and take a ride that would last some unearthly measurement of 42. It is worth noting that in numerology, 42 is the number of a dynamic force that helps you achieve your intentions and ideals. It is also the number of family and home. So after 42 months, or 42 years, Granger would have achieved his mission in space and returned home. As of this recording, 43 years have passed, and Granger has yet to return from his journey among the stars.
The old idiom vanished off the face of the earth and genders new meaning in Granger's case. Perhaps he did leave our lonely planet. As far as an investigation into a missing persons case, there were minimal efforts made to search for Granger. A missing persons report was filed, however, and there was a local search and rescue response. It was later determined that Granger stopped by Bob's Grill just outside of Duncan on the afternoon of his disappearance. But after November 29th, 1980, there was simply no trace left of Granger Taylor or any indication of where he might have gone. It wasn't until nearly six years had passed that officials discovered anything connected to Granger's disappearance. Forestry workers in March of 1986 uncovered a blast site near Mount Prevost, some seven and a half miles north of the Taylor Farmstead near Lake Seminos, and entirely in the opposite direction of where Granger hinted he was headed on the back of his note, southwest to Waterloo Mountain. Officials deemed the 600-foot radius blast site was due to a dynamite explosion. A coroner's report details that fragments of Granger's truck were found at this blast site. However, many close to Granger contest those findings. Robert Keller says the coroner's report lists the truck fragments as blue in color, where Robert explicitly remembers painting Granger's truck Pepto-Bismo pink. Robert remembers that Granger was in the habit of carrying dynamite in his truck to blast tree stumps, but he maintains that Granger was practiced with the explosive and never would have mistakenly blown himself up. However, as far as the police are concerned, Granger died in the explosion. His death certificate cites November 30th, 1980 as his date of death. Yet, how can it be that on the afternoon of the 29th, after Granger had visited Bob's Grill and supposedly continued north toward Mount Prevost, many locals report hearing a loud bang. If Granger did perish in the explosion, how come his official date of death is the day after this supposed dynamite mishap? Friends and family of Granger never did hold a funeral for him. Perhaps that's because they believe in Honest Man when he said he would merely be gone for some time, and when he removed the notion of funeral and death from his will. Is it actually possible that Granger was willingly abducted by extraterrestrial beings? Or did Granger manage to figure out how to bend gravity in order to travel through deep space? Both are equally as plausible or implausible. What is true is that we seldom understand genius. It is foreign, alien, if you will. What force bestowed upon Granger Taylor the gift of genius? And what same power allowed him to so thoroughly vanish? Perhaps it was a coupling of Granger's genius and his fearless belief in impossible things. This episode is part of the Crimes of the Occult miniseries and is a production of Crawl Space Media. Produced, written, and edited by Jennifer Amell. Narrated by Tim Pleary. Granger's Note, voiced by Jen's college buddy, Creston Ketchum, who is actually from British Columbia. Please see the show notes for music credits. Let us know how you like this miniseries by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts.